As Mark said, is a change of pace. Um, in fact, before I get into that, um, I'd just like to, I don't know um, whether Robert um, from RJ Metrics is still here, um, but I'm going to give him a little shout out. I've been in the training business for about 20 years, and I have never once in my life worried about taking the graveyard slot um, in a training program or a conference. And then he threw all that science stuff um, in yesterday. And um, I couldn't sleep last night um, as, a, as a result of it. Um, but I, uh, so I would like to say thank you, Robert. And don't worry, sir, I will continue to buy all my underpants from your company. Um, <laughs> and you know that that's just a joke that is not going to translate once this goes out on video. So, um, so if you've seen me speak here before, I've generally spoken, mostly spoken about sales. And I've seen it as my mission to um, put you in touch with your inner salesperson. But that's only part of what I do. And for the past, uh, since 2008, this, this market, you guys, have been easily the most interesting work that, um, that I do. But to keep food on the table for the kids and all of that sort of stuff, I also do an awful lot of work in big corporations. And we talk not just about sales, but we talk about leadership development and things like that. And when I've been working with, um, with software startups over the last few years, um, often the pretext for me going in is something to do with sales. We want to look at our sales system. We want to update our sales training, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. And then usually. Somebody, the CEO, the CTO, one of the founders, sidles up to me and says, uh, have you got 10 minutes? Um, because just a bit of an internal issue that I want to run by you. And that 10 minutes and that internal issue are a bit like uh, what Rich said about the uh, 10 lines of code. You know, uh, it's never 10 minutes. It's often a much deeper conversation um, than that. And it's not just an internal issue. It's usually a fairly major um, issue. So um, we're going to talk about difficult conversations for the next hour because I think that your business is defined, from a leadership perspective, you are defined, and therefore your business is defined by your ability to step up and have the tough conversations. And so sometimes, um, when we talk about feedback, um, we talk about getting feedback from the team. And that, I thought, um, Claire's talk was fantastic yesterday. Um, and I'm going to try and do the flip side of that, which is what happens when, as a business leader, you actually have to address an issue, um, maybe some of the, from the feedback you've got, or an issue of performance, or whatever. Um, and how you best have that conversation, and why you should have that conversation, and when you should have that conversation. And um, so it's, a it's really a leadership. It's really a leadership talk that, we, that we're going to have. And um, it's, it is a topic, this one is a topic that's close to my heart. I've never done a conference presentation on this before. It's stuff that we do when we're coaching and mentoring um, people. But it's an issue close to my heart because I was really, really bad at this stuff. Um, like you, some years ago, I started a company. I found a partner, and we started a training company. And we built that training company up, um, and we sold that training company, and it was all great. And, okay, but um, we signed up to a, a golden handcuffs deal with, that, with the, the people who bought us. Um, and I think like a lot of people in that situation, you kind of underestimate just how much pressure they're going to put on you to, um, to, to get their return on, uh, return on investment. So uh, we found that we were under a lot of pressure, my partner and I. And, um, and I thought things were going pretty well. 
Um, I thought, you know, we were both playing, you know, it, it was a very typical, um, it was a bit like some of the stuff Richard talked about yesterday about the, the sales versus um, uh, uh, production um, departments. Only weirdly, I wasn't the sales guy. Justin, my partner, was the sales guy. I was responsible for the training teams and the content and the organization of conferences like this. Um, and so I found myself, um, I find myself when I come here, strangely empathizing um, with the uh, product managers and the, and, the, and, the, and the developers, even though the salesman in me wants to shout them down. Um, they, they, I, do, I do feel some, uh, feel some empathy. And, um, and my business partner, God bless him, was a, was a very focused guy. Uh, he still is, actually. He's still alive. And um, he... Uh, <laughs> I hope he is, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, a very focused guy, and he chased uh, lots of targets, and, um, and then, I, you know, as I say, I thought everything was going fine. I had no idea of the scale of the issues that were, were between us two um, founders, till one day, um, we decided to have a meetup in London. Like many of you guys, we, w we had two separate offices, and so we used to meet up when we, uh, when we could. And uh, we, we, got into, we, we went to this really nice restaurant in London, um, and we were discussing some logistical issue to do with the business. And I honestly can't remember what that issue was. But I do remember turning to him after we had just finished the entrees, um, and he was, still, um, he was still eating his soup, and I'd finished my... And, uh, and I said, just oh, for goodness sake, you know, what is the problem? What is the problem? And he's Scottish, so he says, the problem, Paul... And I can't tell you what he called me. I really can't tell you what he called me. If you're interested, it's very Anglo-Saxon, very old, and very, very effective. Very effective at, at um, conveying displeasure and low regard. Okay? <laughs> and I have never been called that to my face in anything other than a silly, jokey kind of rugby way, you know, I had never been called that to my face by somebody who meant it. And his eyes were burning when he said it. And I was absolutely shocked. And I sat there and I said, do you really think, you finished the sentence, and, uh, and he said, no, but it was really great saying it. <laughs> so, um, and one of the things it taught us was that when you get two guys who are founders of a business, you know, two people who, who set up a business, three, four, five, however many of you do it, or if you're running a department, um, or if you're running a project team, and you've got leaders of that team who really care about the um, outcomes, and if you've been smart and you've hired people who have strong opinions and um, who are not afraid to, um, to, to step up and share those um, opinions, um, then you've got to be able to manage that. And actually, the success of your business is going to rely very heavily on your ability to have lots of difficult conversations. And I'm going to try and define what I mean by a difficult conversation. I'm going to try and tell you why this should be high on your agenda. And I'm going to try and show you a bunch of things that you can build into your culture, if you like, the way you manage stuff, um, that will make you better at having these difficult um, conversations. And by the way, I'm not going to talk about, it's, it's, it's easy often at conferences to talk about the time that things went really wrong. But I'm not going to talk about those because, fully enough, um, those are the times when it's often really easy to have a difficult conversation. When your product's gone pop, um, it's really easy to have it because there's a crisis and therefore all inhibitions are aside and people put this stuff on the table. But when you are day-to-day -day running your business, and particularly when you reach that size where you are no longer three people working out of somebody's bedroom or out of Starbucks, and you are not yet a company with processes like HR and all of those sorts of things, then you can run into a lot of issues that will affect the growth of your business. So that's what we're going to talk about. And the first thing we've got to do is maybe define what a difficult conversation is. And the best way I know to do this, I say I've never done this as a, as a presentation. 
So um, I normally coach this with people. We don't, we don't, so I'm going to try um, Boss's first mass coaching on difficult conversations. So the reason I asked you all not to sit with your colleagues, um, and you'll thank me for this, um, is, <laughs> is, is that um, what I want you to do is just take a minute, take a quiet minute, well, not a quiet minute, I want you to talk to the people around you, and I want you to just share... Um, what, what difficult conversations you have either had to do. And by difficult, I mean it made you sweat having the conversation. It made you work. Or maybe you chose the wrong words and it didn't go that, that well. Or maybe the outcome, you know, you thought you'd had a nice open exchange of views and then a resignation letter landed on your, your desk. Or, um, so you can think about it. Though. What are the difficult conversations that have tested me? Or you might be sitting there thinking... Actually, you know what? There's a couple of things that are in the pipeline. Conversation. This is why I asked you to separate from your colleagues. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to apply a kind of omerta um, for, uh, for this. So if somebody tells you something, you do not go running to their colleagues. Uh, like, don't later on go, oh, you're the guy from here. Your colleague thinks. <laughs> because that's not networking. That's cruel. Okay. Um, so I just want you to take a minute and share a few things that you decide, you define as difficult behaviours, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more. Can I give you a minute? Talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this conference organiser. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to shout them out, because obviously that does the whole confidentiality thing, uh, I doubt. But um, I'm going to ask as we go through the presentation, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to come back to these and to think and maybe suggest an action. I'd like you all to have at least one action, either if it was something in the past that I could have done better, so you've got a learning, or if it's something in the pipeline so that you've got something to do with this. Um, so let's talk about these things that you've written down or you've, you've, um, you've discussed. There's a bunch of things that make a conversation difficult. Um, and I think the first of these things is that it's always about standards. When I train leaders, when we run leadership programs, one of the first lessons we put down is to say, if you, because leadership, you know, there are many definitions, and you can spend hours discussing leadership, what is it, differences between, and all that sort of thing. But when it boils down to it, it's really about the propensity of people to follow. So if you call yourself a team leader, but nobody does anything you say, the title is somewhat redundant. Okay? Um, so often what leaders do, and I think what one of the defining factors of leaders, is that leaders set standards. They set standards for little things, like the way we answer the phone and how soon. They set standards for big things, like the way we collaborate on our product development. Um, they set standards of behavior between people in their, in their team. And sometimes you just have to have a discussion, because those standards are challenged. And we'll talk about why that happens in a little while. Um, sometimes those behaviors becomes, become impediments to progress or they become um, kind of breaks. So you are progressing, but you're going at nowhere near the speed or at the quality that you might, um, that you might do. Or sometimes it's just a clash of perspective about, about what's important or what we should do. And if anyone has ever done an Outward Bound course, one of the really funny things that if you, I used to, we used to, we used to run them in my, an old, our old company, and we take kind of slightly overweight 
IT executives from Essex um, to, um, to the mountains of North Wales, um, and uh, usually in the middle of winter. Um, and, um, and we would get them to find their way to meet each team at the top of a, a mountain called Glidavar. And it was really funny because um, they never listened to the navigation lesson at the start of the, the day. They never, you know, they're all, they're all like hands-on problem solvers, you know. Um, and it was amazing how one of the lessons they, they learned was that you only have to be a couple of degrees off at the start of a, a, start of a hike to find yourself on the wrong side of a mountain by the end of the day. And, um, and so um, how we look at things, just a few degrees of difference in how we look at a problem or how we decide what's important um, is a real issue. And so if you're not constantly challenging and talking about the values that run our business, the direction we're taking, then we're not leading the, the business. Um, these conversations are then defined by usually that they are emotionally difficult to process and that they are ego depleting. And you know you've been in a difficult conversation when, you know, it all makes perfect sense when you sit down and think about it and say, I'm going to talk to such and such a buddy about the way they've run this project. And then when you sit in there, your mouth goes dry and you start stammering your words and fudging it a bit and all of those sorts of things. Um, or, um, and when it's over, you are absolutely, as we say in England, knackered. You know, yeah, it takes the, it takes the energy away from you. And those are the reasons, to some degree, um, why people are often not very good at having these difficult conversations. So we have to think about the opportunities to have them. I'm, I'm guessing, and I'm by no means a mind reader, it's just, it's just this is based on... I guess everything I'm covering today, by the way, is based on about 30 clients that I've mentored over the last three years on these issues. But it's nothing to do with any of the people in this room who have been my clients in the last three years. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with them. No surrey, not one bit. Okay? Um, but, um, but when you look at your, what's in there, it's usually... The, thing, the difficult conversations are usually over... They're usually not overly technical, are they? They're usually to do with somebody's not put enough effort into a project. Or um, they've not focused on it. Or they've prioritised other things over the stuff that the team should be working on. Or they failed to keep a promise to each other. All the things that were kind of easy to do when three of us were working out of Starbucks because we could look at each other in the eye and make sure that, that these things happened. And as you grow and you hire people who aren't the, you know, they are your steady eddies, they're not the startup, um, you know, firebrands that many of you guys are, um, and suddenly things don't get done quite as well, quite as quick, quite as passionately as they, as they might have done in our, in our earlier days. And even technical difficulties, one of the things about, about software companies I've noticed is people get very passionate about particular platforms, um, and um, it becomes not about whether it can do the job, but it becomes about which one I feel most comfortable comfortable with. Um, and those discussions can get very heated. This situation is then, is then complicated by a bunch of things that are like little flashbangs going off in the middle of it, where you have different opinions or huge egos, um, or you have um, real tactical differences about how you get things done. And then you sit there in the middle of it as a founder, as a leader, as a project leader, and you sit there and go, I just wanted to make a really cool app that made people's lives easier. I did not come into this world to deal with this sort, with this sort of stuff. Um, and I always say to people that, you know, the biggest technical, most complex problem you will deal with is the interaction of your team. And every person you add, at a million dollars ago, I learned yesterday, um, every person you add um, adds a layer of complexity um, to that. And you actually find that you can't manage these things by quarterly appraisals and annual reviews and you know all of these sorts of all of these sorts of things. It has to be about a willingness to tackle stuff head on. That's a really long way of saying something that somebody else, a fellow bosser, put much more easily than me. Um, and it's uh, you know the finding is sorry, mate. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, that you know. Most, this, is the, this is a quote that you hear from so, so many of the founders I've worked with have turned around and go, you know, sometimes I just want to get back to my laptop and build something, you know, because I know where I am. Um, I know where I am with that. 
So let's have a look at why these conversations will define your business. Um, and the first thing is that, in fact, is there anybody here besides me a veteran of 2008? Boss. I know Ray Stevenson was in there. Yeah. Oh, John, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a little round of applause. Mark, Mark will be putting out um, campaign medals later on for you guys. Um, but um, that was a year. I, the few of you who are here way back then will remember there was a bit of a trope. You know, people talked about rock star developers in those days. You remember that was a, it was a term that's been so overused, it's become a cliche. Um, and everyone was a rock star developer, a rock star blogger, a rock star pr product manager, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I always thought, well, I, I kind of got why we use that, because essentially we want to be rock stars, right? We want to we produce something that is standout different from everybody, from everybody else. Um, but the question is really not, do I want, we want a rock star company? So that's a kind of a little lazy. The question is really, what kind of rock star do you want to be? Because you could be Guns N' Roses. Yeah? If I apologize to only Guns N' Roses fans in the audience, I might up to you. But Guns N' Roses are not really the perfect model for, um, or the perfect analogy for the software businesses that we want to create. They did one great album. Yeah. And yes, it sold shed loads of, um, of, of copies um, in the days before everybody pirated them. And yes, they filled stadiums at the time. And yes, they lived a life of rock and roll excess. You know, well done, Guns N' Roses. But they imploded within two years. You know, people were leaving the band. They were falling out. The lawyers were involved. You know, do you want to be Guns N' Roses if you want to be rock star? Of course not. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest rock and roll band ever, and they're not even my favorite band, but the greatest rock and roll in the world are the Rolling Stones. Because for some reason, they have managed to hold it together now for 55 years. Now, you may not like their music. You may not think they're terribly relevant. They may not play them on your local hip-hop channel or whatever it is that you guys listen to. Um, but... Um, they, uh, they have, if you want a, a good rock star analogy to take away with you, um, I heartily recommend um, uh, reading up on the Rolling Stones because they didn't do it easily, you know. They had their differences. They had their first. In fact, if you get my, my one recommendation of a book, and it's not a software book, it's not a business book, you should read Life by Keith Richards, okay? If nothing else, you will marvel at a man's ability to stay alive um, over those uh, periods. But, but, um, but he, uh, chapter 10 or 11 or something, was, this was the opening line of the chapter. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a band that have, they developed some ways of staying together, of staying with the beaver. Now, admittedly, those ways involved... Um, illegal pharmaceuticals, uh, and fist fights, and, um, and uh, stealing girlfriends, and wrecking cars, and throwing stuff out of each other's um, hotel bedroom windows, and all of those sorts of things. But importantly, they found a way to stay relevant. They still sell tons on their back catalogue. They still fill um, stadiums. If you saw them at Glastonbury a couple of years ago, um, they were, you know, the, the, the audience was full of 18-year-olds um, jumping up and down to the, to, the, the rolling, uh, to the rolling stones. They found a way of, of, of staying relevant. And isn't that the kind of business that we want to be? You know, it's that so, so relevant in the long term, continuing to add value. Um, yes, some people came. Yes, some people went from the band, but the core of it stayed um, the same. So what we're going to cover this afternoon is really all about being the Rolling Stones and not being Guns N' Roses, okay? So I don't think I can push that analogy any further. So, um, so what we should also think about kind of more seriously is that if you pull any data, and I pull lots of this stuff. Um, it's a kind of uh, slightly depressing side of me. There's a schadenfreude side of me. But you know, the, why do startups fail? Has anyone ever just Googled that when you're low moments, you know, <laughs> to see whether it's got, see whether you recognize any of the, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, when, you, when you look at this, what do you notice about this, this list? I mean, this is one of many. This is the Fortune one from last year, but there are many. and, the, and the numbers change slightly, but the things. What do you notice about this list? 
it's a rhetorical question. I'm not expecting you to shout out. It's okay. Uh, but uh, what you notice about this list is that almost all of these issues, to some degree, are leadership and management issues. And to some degree, whenever you, whenever you see, and I, again, if I get to meet a either very successful entrepreneur or someone who's been the mill through, through the mill through, through a few failures, I do like to quiz them um, on it. And almost always, these things are not a surprise to the entrepreneur. They say, do you know what, when we look back on it, this was the conversation we should have had that would have meant we wouldn't have gone with that stupid pivot. Or this is the conversation that we should have had which meant we would never have VC backed at this point. Or this is the conversation with my partner that says we should have split the business and done two different things at those, at those points. So it's really important that we're brave enough never to leave these things in the background because they do have an effect. Businesses fail sometimes for external factors. Sometimes you can blame a big external factor, a war or a whatever. But most of the time, they fail because we didn't have the right conversations. Here's another jolly image for you, just to uh, <laughs> see if you can keep your lunch down. And uh, the, 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 um, there's an old Eastern European proverb, and I think a book by somebody um, called um, The Fish Always Rots from the Brain. And one of the reasons that this is a really good proverb for leadership is that often as leaders, we're so busy, we don't realize that um, the organization around us is defined as much by what we don't do and don't say as it is by what we do do and do say, if that makes, if that makes sense. Um, and so, when, and we'll talk about this a little later, when people um, have a challenging issue and it's not addressed, by the, um, by the CEO, by the founders, by the team leader, the manager, then what they learn is that that issue kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I finish this on time or whether I let it slide a few days. It doesn't matter whether I copy and paste some code which I know to be a bit ropey, um, you know, um, and we'll fix the bugs later um, because my tenure on this project will be over then. I'll leave it for someone else. Um, you know, it doesn't matter then because nobody's told me or nobody's addressed that issue with me. So you have to think very closely about what you don't say and don't do, and sometimes the biggest steps forward you'll make as a business is by having those conversations earlier. And I'll, I'll explain more in, a, in a, a, a second. Secondly, it's a cuter picture. I sort of, you can take a moment to recover from the dead fish if you want to. Um, the, secondly, it's that um, people have a habit of making huge mountains out of little molehills. There is a term that psychologists, uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapists use called catastrophizing. And that is, a, that is an internal dialogue, something to be mindful of, actually, relating to yesterday's um, presentation. Um, uh, but uh, the, it, it, is, it is the process of, well, here's this problem. Nobody's addressed it with me. So I'm going to play it in my head again. And then I'm going to play it in my head again. And what we do is when we play these dramas in our head, what happens? We become center stage in a huge drama about why my boss is an asshole, um, why, my, um, why my, um, my colleagues aren't as good as me, why I'm being like that. You get this all the, the time. And, and I just saw this just a few weeks ago with a client where um, a very senior account manager at a very large-ish um, advertising agency walked in, nearly in tears, to her boss, and she said, that's it, I can't take any more, I'm out of here. And he said, why? And she said, I have been asking for the font on these business cards to be changed for six months. She said, and um, one of the interesting things about this, you know, now it's easy to dismiss her, it's easy to laugh at her, but one of the things was that those things became totemic. For, uh, for they, they, those became a symbol of being not listened to, not having the not having the feedback thought through, if you like, if you like, not being recognised, and therefore it grows in people's minds. So sometimes, when you've got to address issues of performance, etc., with your with your staff, they know it's coming. If somebody was late delivering, they know you want to have a word with them, and if you put it off 
they sit there and play on it. And then they go from being, oh, it was my fault, I was late, to, well, I was late because the team over there didn't deliver their code to me um, exactly on time, and my chair's a bit uncomfortable, and um, uh, I'm sitting right next to the AC, so my, I'm um, getting a crick in my neck, you know. And by the time you do come to deal with it, it becomes a big, um, a, a big um, issue. So deal with stuff quickly. We'll, again, we're gonna come back to some of these. Unspoken conversations, never, the issue behind it never gets better by leaving it. Maybe leaving it a few hours to find a quiet time, to find a gap, but never ever gets better over time. What we do is we convince ourselves with some fantastic stories that it's definitely going to. You know, so if I speak to them at the end of the week, then the moon will be rising in Capricorn and there'll be a better place to listen to my feedback. Um, obviously, I'm being facetious, but you get the point. So there's always a project issue, a client issue that stops you having these conversations. Um, and the problem is, of course, when you do sit down, once you realize you've left it too long, if you look at some of the issues that you've written down, once you, once you um, go to deal with them, you know that the pressure valve has been rattling for a while and it's not going to be a constructive conversation. The other issue you've got to do this is because people are by nature tribal and they are by nature loyal, which are two things that we hire them for, right? We hire people because they want to be part of our team. But once that we've failed to address an issue, once you've got a division, and I think Rich covered them brilliantly um, just on the stuff we've talked about before, but, but brilliant on the difference between the production side of the business and the sales and marketing side of the business, etc. People like to be in a camp. And if we don't address issues of that sales guy who made a promise that they couldn't keep, or that production um, guy who just point blank refused to listen, um, if we don't address those issues when they're small, they become bigger and they become part of the culture, part of the way we do business. And I don't know about you, but you don't want to be defined as a business that is, you know, the defining element of your business is that sales and marketing and product management will never, will never um, get on. In fact, I guess that what I took from Richard's talk yesterday was that it was, it was the, the job of the leader to make sure that never happens. The tool of doing that is challenging the behavior quickly um, and effectively at the at the time. It's not just about avoiding bad stuff though. Most startups rely on creative tension, do they not, to make stuff happen. They rely on us being uncomfortable. They rely on us pushing boundaries. And I'm going to tweet a link straight after this, but um, one of, the, um, one of the, the kind of strategic thinkers that, um, uh, that has shaped a lot of my thinking, uh, it's a guy called Cliff Bowman, um, and on competitive strategies, brilliant. But he, he always talked uh, from um, Cranfield Business School uh, in, um, in, in England. And one of the things that, um, oops. Let's try again. It's now going to jump six slides. Okay, no, it's not. Right. One of the things that he talks about, and I want, it's, a, it's a term you should take back with you, is, um, is he talks about a thing, that he, he says that in any business, there are kind of three zones of discussion. There is, and if you imagine this, is, this, this conference as the, as the discussion, standing outside having coffees, chatting about this and that, is the zone of comfortable debate. You know, where everybody can get together and they can talk about, you know, the project timeline because it's already there. They can talk about um, the, uh, the different teams. They can talk about all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that's the zone of, of comfortable debate. And then, like, in here, closer to it in the concentric circle, is the zone of uncomfortable debate. And Bowman says that a sign of a strategically uh, mature business is a business that has grown to be comfortable operating, not comfortable, capable operating in the zone of uncomfortable debate, if that, makes, if that makes sense. Tackling the issues, actually turning around and going, do you know what, guys, you dropped the ball on that one, and here's why. Do you know what, guys, we could have put more effort in, we should have planned this better, we should have done this, this, um, this more. Because once you've got through the zone of uncomfortable debate, then you genuinely get to the heart of the issue, the elephant in the room, I think was what 
um, Clive called it. And it's really important because if I take you back through the boss years, then one of the challenges we've got, one of the things that you will, a, a recurring theme, I suppose, um, from you know, real brains, real business brains, um, Jeffrey Moore, Clayton, um, and Rita, was that, was that Rita McGrath, was that, was that um, businesses fail not because people are dumb. Pretty much everybody who's got the chops to start a big business or start a business like yours um, is actually pretty smart. But when businesses get disrupted, um, they, um, or they fail to see a competitor come, uh, come along, or they fail to spot that kind of um, the, the, the gap in the, in the, the market, um, it's usually because nobody wants to have an uncomfortable debate about what we have to break in order to move on. We, we cling to things because they make us feel safe. So it's really important that we address these things. And I suppose as the final point on this, this why is one of the things we always train people on our leadership programs is, um, is the concept of a leadership moment. And you may have heard of this or, or not, but um, I always tell people to imagine there's a camera on you all day, every day. Okay, it's a kind of unsettling thought, and it's probably true, but um, it's, uh, <laughs> that's one to think about. Um, and, uh, and, um, and what that's doing is kind of monitoring your behavior, because during the day, if you've got a team of 10 people, they will all have a different thing that they call a leadership moment. It's a bit like customer moments of truth. There are certain things that you will do or don't do that will increase people's propensity to follow you. And that's why sometimes people can turn around when they're at the end of a sprint and everybody's really tired and they've got nothing left and we say, look guys, one more push and everybody's behind you. Or you turn around and you go, guys, one, guys. You know? <laughs> um, and the difference is, what have they seen of you that has set the tone for the way we, the way we um, perform? So we know why, and there's a lot of reasons why people don't have key, these conversations. The first of these is that there's two bits to getting anything done. There's the job in hand, and then there's the way we organize ourselves to do it. And I had a little experience a few years ago. I ran a sales um, workshop for a business of software upstairs, a couple of floors. And um, I said to, we were doing that. I can't remember exactly what we were doing, but we got a lot of sales problems. And we were, we were solving them as, tea, as, as, as teams. And everyone was throwing the, um, the, the, the flip charts up on the wall. And I kind of said, just passing, I said, wouldn't it be great if there was just some kind of, if you could just do a panoramic shot with your camera, and then each flip chart, there was a kind of optical character reading of the flip charts, and then it would automatically put them into order and, you know, and text you a copy of all this work that we've done. And I just said it as a joke, right? And then about two minutes later, I realized I'd lost half the room. You know, because all you flipping engineers were sitting there going, oh, right, oh, you've given us a task to do, much better than this sales nonsense. And you, there were literally people, you know, starting to wireframe the, um, the, 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 the product. And everybody falls into this, thing, but engineers particular, people of an engineering disposition, we'd rather talk about the task because it's less personal than we would talk about the process because that is often deeply personal. Often, for people like you, the colleagues that you have to have difficult conversations with are your friends. Many of you have hired your college mates. Many of you have, um, uh, have gone into business with your friends. If the person you have to have a, a difficult discussion with is the person that you went through school with, um, the person you did your first ever double date with, the person you, you know, um, the person you played on the football team with, the per you know, whatever, whatever, it becomes much more difficult to them to, to say to them, that was wrong. I don't like the way you dealt, you dealt with that. Um, and there's a whole issue of social distance, which I'm afraid we don't have time to go um, into today, but it becomes a barrier. We give people more slack sometimes. We essentially are dishonest with them because they say, it doesn't matter that I rocked up to this client meeting 10 minutes late, does it? You understand, because they're your buddy, and you're sitting inside seething, and you go, yeah, it's fine, because you don't wear, you've actually just lied to your best friend, but it's fairly easy to do. And one of the reasons that we do it 
is because every time you have to have a difficult conversation, there's going to be a time penalty. And there's often a talent penalty. You sit and wonder, well, actually, this person truly is our 2008 cliche rock star producer, you know, coder. They really can produce stuff faster than anyone else. I do not want to say anything to upset them. The fact that they piss off everybody else on the team and nothing gets done anywhere else, um, you know, I'm prepared to put up with because they are so reliably, um, reliably good. And that's one of the reasons why we let things lie. And of course, as um, we talked about, yes, Matthew talked about yesterday afternoon, this fast, slow thinking stuff. Once you sit down to say, well, I need to address an issue. I need to address one of these issues that we've written down. The emotional side, it's easy to write down what you want to say. The emotional side kicks in. We get the catastrophizing. We do this thing called mind reading, which is another thing where, because you know your staff so well, you say, well, actually, if I have to address the way that somebody, you know, maybe our sales guy pitches the customers and I think it's wrong, and I hired him because he's an expert sales guy, but I think he's just wrong. Um, and you start then imagining, but what will he think? And then you start imagining, well, well maybe we'll fall out over this. and Maybe he won't be so motivated next time. Uh, and then before long, you, you are, you are, and then he'll leave the business. And then where will we be? I'll have to do the selling. You know? And so we, we play these scripts out in our head, and we avoid the conversations as a result. So what on earth can we do? All I can share with you guys is what I've learned from working with some amazing businesses just like yours. And I can tell you just a few kind of hints and tips that are the behaviors that you notice in culture. And I'm going to leave the whole culture bit and behavior bit um, to Alex tomorrow, because I know he's got an awesome presentation um, for you on mapping all of, of, of that. But it will relate very closely to what we're, 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 talking, uh, we're talking about. Um, and in fact, I'm going to pinch one of his lines. Culture is actually just the amalgamation of behaviors. It's amalgamation of all the behaviors that we display in our, our business. So, we need a big list of tactics for making sure that we don't miss difficult behaviors. So, first of all, companies who are really good at this stuff, the senior team particularly, develop a really clear perspective. Now, if you were here two years ago, you would recognize what one of these is. Who remembers? Who was here? Awesome! Right, okay. How many of you have pulled your report out and looked at it between the last time you met me and this time? Oh, even better! All right, how many of you are really telling the truth? That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> so, um, so very often, our most difficult conversations are not about whether we paint the product red or blue. They're about how we approach the, 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 the problem. And if you haven't seen the workshop we did in 2013, and you want to, it is on the BLN site and the Business of Software site, and Mark will tweet the links, uh, no doubt. Um, and uh, this is about perspective. If you've got somebody who is very inspiration-driven, people-focused, big-picture thinking, and their colleague is much more down-to-earth, do you remember these two? Who are they? Wendy and Mark, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, uh, said Mrs. Littlewood. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and um, so sometimes, the, the first thing I always say to people when they say, can I have the, a word with you about this internal issue? And I say, who's the internal issue with? What do you know about the way that they process? What do you know about the way that they ask? Uh, they, they get things done. What do you know about the way that they, um, they like to be communicated um, with? And sometimes, if you drag out your old report or you pull it and you go around it with people, they go, actually, you know what? I think I just need to say this. And the, and the, and the action becomes really clear. I'm not going to spend any more time on this because there's an hour-long presentation and you're very welcome uh, to have it. And if anybody wants to drop me a line, if you're interested in finding more, I'll certainly um, send you uh, more. The second thing I think is probably the most important of all the stuff I'm going to go through with you, and it ties very much to what, um, what we talked about in the final presentation ye uh, yesterday. This is a little model that was given to me 20 years ago by um, a, 
uh, a guy I admired very much. He was a former director of um, British Telecom at a time when they were stopping being a landline company and starting to be a communications company. And he, talk, he said, you know, if you've got any crucial conversation to have in your business, before you think about what you want to say, check your state. Now, as a 31-year-old, you know, aspiring entrepreneur, I was like, what? I haven't got time for that. I've got a sales target to hear. I've got three different conferences to run. And he said, check your state. And, and he explained what he meant. He said that everybody goes into every conversation in a particular state. And if you're going in a state of fear, or the person you're talking to is in a state of fear, then they behave as a casualty. Have you ever had one of those conversations with your, your staff where they know something difficult is about to be di discussed? And they go, what can I do? You know, it's all down to production. It's all down to, you know. And, and they be literally behave as a casualty. It's called learned helplessness. Okay. Um, but if you go into a position of fear when the client's screaming at you, guys, I've told you 20 times to get this done, you know, um, and people pick up that it's for fear, all you do is spread fear. If your state is one of anxiety, then you become that sort of person who says whatever people need to hear in order to get approval to survive to the end of the day, which is where businesses lose loads of money. We throw stuff at things at this, this, this point. I'm not sure politicians necessarily a fair uh, description of them, but it's a good description. If you are driven by stress, then you tend to be more of a warrior. And that was a, the, the example um, uh, yesterday from Matthew was a perfect example of when two guys want to talk about something that he's already made his mind up. If you are in stress state, what do you do when somebody messes with your plan? You strap on your armor, Game of Thrones style, and off you go to war. You jump on your charger and you go, you go to war. But if you can get yourself to a state of balance, and this is what um, my old colleague Ray Bell used to say, if you start each conversation above the line, I've got a horrible feeling that's mine, Mark. <laughs> In the back over there. <laughs> so, lesson number one, difficult conversations. Is <laughs> oh, dear. So, thank you, mate. <laughs> okay. Well, we're in a position, if we're in balance, if our state is one of balance, we tend to have a better conversation because it's one of guidance. So the conversation, no matter how tough the situation, is one of, well, where do we go from here? And if you have, I mean, we could, I can't spend lots of time on, on this, unfortunately. We're happy to at future stages. But, but this term, above the line, is one I'd love you to get into your vocabulary. Because you know when you've gone into a critical conversation and you've been below the line, don't you? You know when you've gone in from a position of stress or a position of anxiety because you say all the wrong things. The calm voice that is in your head comes out like that, you know? Um, and, um, and so the first thing I always say to people is check your state. And you also know when you're at the top end of the scale, when actually somebody brings something to you and because you've been in the business years and because it doesn't really touch on you too much and because you've got perspective, you, you know, has anyone ever had that boss who, who just says, why don't you try that? And then they've worked a little bit of magic for you. That's why we, 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 we call them that. So from our perspective, the first person state is not the person you have to have the conversation with, but yourself. Companies that are good at having these difficult conversations, addressing issues, building stuff quickly, always have a culture of addressing issues when they happen. And by that, I mean you may wait a couple of hours till there's a quiet time or you can go for a coffee or whatever, but you don't leave stuff days. It's better to deal with things when they're this big than when they're this big. And everything that you ever needed to know about laws of reinforcement, etc., you'll find in most of Kathy Sierra, Sierra's book, if you read it, um, if you haven't already, you'll find it in her videos. But essentially... If you leave conversations, if, you, if somebody lets you down in some way, somebody goes along to a client meeting and they behave inappropriately, or if um, there's an inappropriate response from somebody in, a, in a, a, a team meeting or a brainstorm or whatever, if you leave it, what you're doing is you are reaffirming. You're saying, as the leader, I think it's okay for you to behave 
like that. I'm prepared to make excuses for you. And the longer you leave it, the harder it gets to have a conversation because um, as a client of mine did, he used, he used to say to people, I hate appraisals, you know, like the quarterly reviews. And I go, why? You know, they're just a, another thing that we do. It's neither good nor bad. He goes, no, I hate it. He says, I've got this big list of feedback that I have to give people. And they get really irritated with me before halfway and they get really defensive. And I'm saying, what, you wait three months before you tell somebody they were late for a meeting or they didn't finish a project on time or whatever. And he says, isn't that what an appraisal is for? Yeah. I said, no, we need to talk. Um, but uh, but it's, it's quick. So there will be lots of times when you are super under pressure. Um, you've got clients um, screaming down the phone at you or sending you, um, sending you uh, emails all in caps. And, um, and you, will have to, you, know, you will have to make a valued decision about actually, do I let this go or do I deal with it? And just as a, based on 30-odd clients that, that we've talked to in the last few years, generally every time people leave it, they regret it. So as a rule of thumb, never let it um, pass. Remember, the only thing you can change is a behavior. You may be looking at somebody and going, you know what, this person's attitude is really slack. They're not as focused, as motivated as they were. But you cannot ask someone to be more motivated. You can only change specific behaviors. So let me give you a quick example. Um, the, uh, uh, an issue we dealt with just a few weeks ago with a, a client. A salesperson uh, for a software company that I dealt with had a bit of a habit of over-promising. Okay? Now, I was surprised. <laughs> But um, they were a really good salesperson most of the time, but they just had this habit, particularly with um, big, important clients, of like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. It's just 10 lines of code. Don't worry. It's, uh, uh, and um, and uh, the CEO of the organization said, I can't let this go on. I don't want to demotivate this person because they work really, really hard. Um, they're totally committed. They do all of this, you know, this great stuff. They write marketing material for us. They're really knowledgeable. But you know what? As soon as the client puts pressure on them, they just fold and they make them promises. And then, and then they don't really tell us properly what those promises are because they know what the repercussions will be. And then we end up in a, in a mess with the, with the customer. Now, what are the, what's the behavior that you have to change there? It's that state of mind is state of mind, yes, but that's a behavior that you've got to change. You've got to think in terms of behavior. Yeah, so, yeah, so on, the, on the face of it, it's over-promising. Okay? So you can say stop doing that, but generally, people don't do behaviors for no reason. They usually do behaviors because they've got a habit and because they do it for some reason. Because they're probably thinking, yeah, but you're going to shout at me even more if I don't hit my, my number. So, you know, which is the lesser of the two evils? There's a level of complexity that comes in there. So over-promising is the key behavior we want to stop. But actually, we might want to do other stuff. We might actually want them to say, actually, we want you, when somebody puts you under pressure, we want you to ask four more questions of the customer to work out why they really want that thing. Because you might bring the problem back to us, and we might be able to fix that with what we've already got. So rather than pray, or you might say, do you know what? Maybe we want this person to be more assertive. So we want them to defend the product now as good enough, to feel happy to say no. And so those are the behaviors. So whenever you change behavior, you can't change attitude, but you can change behavior by highlighting those things that you don't want, but you must replace it with a behavior that you do. One. And if you change enough behaviors, then you change an attitude. If you change the attitude in enough people, then you can change a culture. Um, and Alex will tell you how to do that tomorrow. So um, number five, I always say there's three ways you can deal with difficult issues. You can ignore them, you can fudge them, or you can be a leader. And if you ignore them, we talked about the implications, stuff just gets later. Fudging difficult conversations sounds like this. So please, Peldy, come into my office. Okay. Um, we've had a conversation, and there's a general feeling that your department really needs to um, focus a bit more on delivering stuff on time. And that is an utter fudge. 
It helps no one, it does nothing, but you still find yourselves doing it. People still find themselves doing it. Because we're nice people, we don't want to upset, we don't want, you know. Actually, if you're going to give feedback, and I think this is another crucial one, is that you have to take responsibility for what you saw, how you feel, what you want to happen. It has to be, I have noticed that. This is what I saw in that meeting. This is what I'd like you to do instead. People won't always thank you for it in the short term, but if you fudge an issue, what happens? Well, if you fudge an issue and you say, oh, well, you know, we feel we should have been a bit sharper on that deadline, the first question somebody in defensive mode, if they're stated, who's we? You know? And then you get into an argument about who's worked out. Oh, so what you're saying is that all of production hates sales. And then we're into a whole, other, um, a whole other conversation. Again, I'm exaggerating for dramatic effect. But, um, and just to give you a really quick example, one of the ways that we, um, that we, we discuss, we, we train people to do this, is we, um, is we just train them to say, look, to, your quick intervention is always to describe a behavior. Never feedback on an attitude, never feedback on anything other than a behavior. So you describe a behavior, you say, this is what I saw. So in the client meeting, this is what I saw. You know, in the client meeting, it became obvious that you hadn't prepared the monthly review of the, of the um, progress, that you were making it up, or that you, you know, it became obvious because the slides were wrong, they were cut and paste from last month. You know, that's what I noticed. The consequences, you should describe them. Again, the consequence of behavior, which are that, you know, so we've gone down a little bit in this client's estimation. It's not critical, but we've gone down a bit. If we do that a couple of times, then any, con any competitor that's pitching to them is going to look good in comparison to us. So what do we do next time to make sure that doesn't happen? And you put the emphasis on them to tell you that they make the time, do the slides, get the training, you know, whatever it, whatever it is. And then you agree the next steps. Now, this is just a quickie to show you that in that, the, the issue is all owned. I noticed this. This is what I need you to do. Um, this is what we can do. What, you know, it's owned and it's shared between the two of you. It is not, it is not fudged and it's not ignored. Just by the way, as a, as a quick by the by, um, I used to call this feedback, consequences, options, next steps, until I trained it once in um, Liverpool, in the north of England. And uh, one of my delegates went, so, so Paul, if this doesn't, you know, if FACON doesn't work, <laughs> can you tell them to... Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. So, it's, uh, so I changed it. Okay. All right. Some of the long-term stuff you can do is create team rules. It's easier to hold people to rules and to standards that they've created themselves. This is a picture of the, um, the 1997 British Lions um, squad who had no chance of winning in South Africa. I know this probably doesn't mean much to most um, of you, but if you ever, it, 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 there was a brilliant film made about it, and one of the things they did was they took all these players who more or less hated each other because they compete at local and national um, level, um, and they, they started with a set of rules. This is how we behave towards each other at teams. And interestingly, one of the rules was if somebody gets selected ahead of you, it's up to you to go and congratulate them because it's harder for them to come and talk to you. They thought about it in that sort of um, level. So any time you spend doing this makes holding people accountable, having that conversation, because then the conversation starts with, this is the way we agreed to run this project. This is the communication rule we applied here, and this is what happened and then you've got a better conversation as a result of it. Or you can find interesting ways to depersonalize a situation. This is um, a guy called Terence, who's a lovely guy, but he worked for um, uh, another of my clients, a big agency in, um, in London. And one of the things we tried with them, because one of their issues was a big strategic issue, was we got them to build their company processes in Lego took a day to do it. But do you know what? Once people start to transfer the issue from inside their head and between each other to a third party, and this is why business model canvases work so well and why you should really pay attention in the morning. I could do, again, a day on this. I just want to show you what people will experiment with in order to be able to have those difficult um, conversations, to talk about the zone, talk in the zone of uncomfortable debate. 
In your business, ask yourself, do we talk about process as much as we talk about progress? And if not, you should have campfire meetings, which are not about did we write the right amount of code, did we back the database up, all that kind of stuff. It's all about how do we work as a team? What behavior is there? Because the more you talk about that, the more familiar it feels if you've got to have a conversation with somebody about their contribution to the um, team. If it's not there, you should dig around and have a look. Number nine, please use a third party. When you're, when you're talking between founders, when you've got big issues between founders, because a third party who you trust will look only at the process. They don't care about the day-to-day -day of your business. I have yet to come across a town anywhere in the civilized world that does not have somebody who's an experienced mentor and facilitator. Seek them out, because they will actually help you with your most contentious issues. Who are we as a business? What are our priorities? Where are we going? Those are the people who will, who, who will um, do it. They will tell you when you're being overbearing, when you've dropped below the line. They will tell you when you're, um, when you're, you're, you're being dishonest by holding something back. And if you're smart, you'll find somebody to help you with those. And finally, never forget to listen, because the Jungian definition of maturity is flexibility. It's the ability to see the world from the other person's point of view. And there's more that you can do that, I'm going to refer you back to my previous session here, the more likely you are to be able to have those difficult conversations. So that was a whistle-stop tour, guys. I hope it's been useful. I know that I'm over time, Mark, so I'm going to be around for as long, uh, well, to the end of the conference. So if you have any questions, is it better that we do them later? Just, uh, uh, I think so, I'm afraid. We've, we've, yeah, yeah, we've run, we've, I've run a minute over. But thank you very much, guys. Hope that was useful. Right. It's the same for Mike Mooney. Um,